We are still in middle of principle number 10 of the 13 principles, and that teaches us that God knows everything. Principle 10 is the principle of divine omniscience. Unlike the heretics who say that God has abandoned the land, God created the world, but left it and is no longer at the wheel, is no longer in charge, we believe, and the 13th principle of 13 principles of faith tell us that God knows all. And last time, and indeed the time beforehand, we spoke about the origin of this kind of heresy. What is the reason why people have this kind of heresy? And the Rabbim tells us that the reason is, is because people look at the world, and they see disorder, and they see chaos. How could it be? If God is in charge, things should be more organized. Why do we have a world wherein people's situations and circumstances appear to be so disorganized and random. And of course, we believe that God is in total control of everything. He is good, he is just, and he is fair, more fair and more good and more just than any human being. And the reason why we see disorder and chaos is because we don't know actually what's happening behind the scenes. And we are in the middle of an amazing chapter in Derech Hashem, The Way of God, written by Ramchal, by Lutzato. In it, he makes the very bold statement that he's going to outline all the various reasons why things happen, why people's situations and circumstances are the way they are. Now, none of these reasons, of course, are going to be what the heretics say. The heretics say, well, it's all random. God has left the land. We are at the mercy of awful and indiscriminate forces. No, that's not what we believe. The Almighty is completely in charge. It's just that we don't know why he's making the various decisions that he's making. We cannot fathom his ways. But the Ramchal in this chapter is going to give us all the various reasons for why he does what he does. Not that we can pinpoint any specific reason and say, this is why this is happening. But he's going to instead survey for us the various reasons why things could be happening. And once we have that framework or those frameworks in mind, we can understand that there is a method to the madness. There is a reason why people are in situations that they are. Why exactly a specific person is in a specific situation, we don't know. But in general, we understand that there is a system behind it. So, so far, we have seen three frameworks. Number one, that every person has a unique mission to fulfill. We're here for a purpose. We're here for a reason. For some, it's to struggle with good circumstances. You're rich, and that means that you are liable to forget God. You are liable to ignore the plight of your fellow man. That's the challenge that rich people have. Poor people have a different challenge. They have to struggle to be happy with what they have. They have to struggle to not get angry or bitter or become an ingracious malcontent. They have to struggle with difficult circumstances. And therefore, the reason why people are placed in certain circumstances is to facilitate them to have their arena of challenges. And we mentioned last time that those are often unchangeable. If it is your mission to be poor... Unless the Almighty recreates the whole world from scratch, only then is there a chance that your circumstances can change. So that's idea number one, or framework number one. Framework number two is that 
A person's mission in life is constantly being tweaked, made easier or harder depending upon their behavior. And this is a concept that he called reward and punishment, not ultimate reward and punishment, but reward and punishment vis-a-vis making your job, your mission, your task that you must complete in this world, making it easier or harder. And the third framework that we saw last time is the concept of suffering. Suffering on two different planes, either suffering to wake a person up, a person is going off track, they are behaving in a way that's improper, they are deviating away from the path that the Almighty wants them to be upon. And the Almighty, in His benevolence, in His kindness, in His goodness, is willing to wake a person up, nudge them away, elbow them in the ribs, and say, wake up, realize what you're doing, you're here, temporarily. Don't mess things up. Don't destroy yourself for eternity. Get back on track. That's one kind of suffering. If that doesn't work, the Almighty will deploy a second kind of suffering, namely a suffering to cleanse a person from their spiritual blemishes in order that they don't suffer from them in Olmaban. That's the concept of a sin creating a flaw, a blemish in a person's soul And once that soul is divested from the body, that soul will have to suffer and endure the consequences of those blemishes, and therefore it is to a person's benefit for them to be disencumbered from those sins via a cleansing of suffering in this world. That's what we did last time. Now we're going to pick up the Ramchal in the middle of this chapter, and this is part two or section number two, chapter number three. And he's going to give us a whole slew of new frameworks to understand how the divine interacts with people. And the next framework that he offers is more of a big picture understanding of the limitations in this world. And the way he frames it is that there is a cap to evil. People don't have unlimited reign to do whatever they want. There is a limit There's a certain allowance that the Almighty tolerates before the Almighty removes a person from the arena of free choice. The Almighty does not allow a person to do unrestricted evil for an interminable amount of time. That's not how it works. There is a limit. There is a boundary. There is a point of no return wherein a person who is a sinner, he's allowed to sin, allowed to corrupt themselves and the world around them, up to a certain point. Once that point is reached, then you're done. You have been filled. The allowance has been filled, and that person or that thing will be destroyed. So, obviously, we, it's hard to quantify exactly what this looks like. But suppose, just to make it easy, a person has... 50 units of corruption. And if a person becomes more corrupt and more corrupt and they get worse and worse and they fall deeper into the abyss of sin and corruption and they reach level 48 to level 49 and level 50, once they reach that point, they've reached the point of no return. They can never rectify and undo it. Their mission is no longer fulfillable, it's no longer feasible for them to fulfill it, and they are destroyed. But up until that point, 
before the sinner has arrived at level 50, the wicked can flourish. And the classic example of this is, of course, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah was the most prosperous and wealthy region in the world. Until the Almighty rained fire and sulfur upon them and flipped them over and destroyed any remnants of that flourishing or previously flourishing society. The wicked could flourish, but once they reach a point of no return, the Almighty unleashes his wrath upon that person or that city or that nation or that region, and then they are gone forever. We actually did a whole podcast about this recently on the Parsha podcast, and that explains the whole back and forth with Abraham and God vis-a-vis Sodom. The argument was, have they reached the point of no return or not? Now, the Ramchal, he revisits the framework that we talked about last time, that a wicked person is deliberately made to flourish in order to expedite his arrival at the point of no return and to facilitate his utter destruction. Now, the idea behind this is that a person is placed here with a mission. And that's really the only reason why you are here. The reason why you are in this arena of free will, you're in the playing field, it's only to fulfill a given mission. But once the sins and the corruption and the evil becomes endemic, it becomes so baked in to the fabric of a person, it becomes so innate and irreversible, well then, that mission is no longer fulfillable, and that person, or that place, or that nation, is destroyed, is removed from the playing field. We're here, and it seems like we have free reign, but we're constantly being monitored by God to determine have we reached the point of no return, and if yes, then the experiment is over. Now, the Ramchal continues with a very interesting and perhaps even counterintuitive framework to follow. He gives us more reasons why good things and bad things happen to people. And again, we are framing this as a response to the heretics. The heretics say, well, it's all random. It can't be God is in control because what we see is not what God would do. Now we're finding out what indeed God does. And the next framework that Ramchal tells us is about the relationship that people have with their environment, with their the, the parts of the world that are external to them. People don't exist in a vacuum. They don't exist in isolation. They're part of a dynamic and multifaceted ecosystem. So they have parents and maybe they have siblings and they have children and they're in a society and they're in a locale at a given epoch of history, at a given point in history. And all those particular circumstances of a person, they also determine what their mission is. So your circumstances is going to affect everything else in this larger ecosystem and all that is taken into account when determining your circumstance and your mission. And therefore he tells us, if for whatever reason a person is endowed by God, they might determine they should be rich, they should be wealthy. Their children, because they're plugged into their parents, 
they too will be rich unless something changes. And similarly, vice versa. Meaning, because a person is part of a larger environment, that too has an effect on that individual. People are born with a silver spoon, we're told, in their mouth. And he adds something really interesting, and again, also counterintuitive. People can be born spiritually cleansed because of their parents. If you have a person who really works in their character and made themselves more refined and more ethical and more just and more kind, and they develop their character and they develop their temperament, that actually changes who they are. And in fact, our sages tell us that we have a certain balance of secretions within every person. And there are four different types. There's the yellow secretion and the black one and the red one and the white one. And the specific balance of these various secretions, they determine character and temperament. So the classic example is if someone has lots of red in their balance, and what this means on a chemical level, I don't know, but this is what our sages tell us. If you have a lot of red, it means you're likely to be hot-headed and really angry. But what happens if you work really hard and you study Musser, Jewish ethics, and you control your anger and you develop self-control and you resist the temptation to scream at people and to get all angry and worked up about things? Slowly, that quantity of red secretions that you have within you begin to dip. And eventually, the children that you spawn are going to be less hot-headed and less angry because that is the kind of seed that you will give off, one that has a different balance of these chemicals. What this idea is essentially saying is that Character refinement or character in general is hereditary. And here we're told that circumstances, the situation in which a person finds themselves is also hereditary. If you're rich, it's likely, unless something changes the way things should be, it's likely your kids will be rich as well and vice versa. So a person can become rich because of their parents and they could change over time. And if you have a kid who's supposed to be wealthy, you could be wealthy to get the kid started. Moreover, the place that you're in, the society in which you're in, all that can affect you positively and negatively in your circumstances. Now, he doesn't spell out exactly what the mechanism over here is, but he does say something really fascinating. He says that all this goes into a person's judgment. So you have two people. One of them is a child of righteous people and good people and honest people and refined people. And that child is born essentially already halfway up the mountain. And if they remain stagnant or they allow their spiritual level to drop even, they'll still be pretty high up the mountain And on an absolute scale, they look pretty impressive. But that is not how God judges a person. Because they did not advance on their own, they're going to be judged harshly. The fact that you were born with a 
spiritual silver spoon in your mouth, that doesn't mean that you can just coast and not do any work on your own. So what you'll end up with is a very peculiar thing where you have a criminal, but you know what? His dad was a way worse criminal. He's a lesser criminal than dad. That person may end up being more worthy in the eyes of God than a tzaddik who is less of a tzaddik than his dad. One of them is a tzaddik, righteous person. The other person is a criminal, a wicked person. But where'd they come from? What was the starting point? One of them, the starting point was an even bigger tzaddik, and therefore they regressed. And the other person, they start off as an even bigger criminal, and therefore they progressed. And therefore, the judgment is completely relative to the starting point. So it's very advanced ideas over here, but it gives us another framework for understanding the circumstances that a person finds themselves in this world. It's all relative and proportional to their unique situation, to their heritage, to their pedigree, to the society in which they live, and to the environment in which they live. And then continues Ramchal, and this is where it gets really interesting. He talks about the concept of spiritual merit inequality. You have some people who are very righteous, very righteous, very pious, very good people, really worked on their spiritual selves, really developed themselves spiritually. And they're, of course, right away going to be stamped with a ticket to heaven. And then you have other people, and other people are, well, not as advanced, not as refined, not as righteous. And what happens with those people? Do they end up in heaven? So here's what he introduces us to. Some righteous people will be able to enable others who would not get to heaven on their own to enter. The Almighty, the way he describes it, the Almighty looked at the world and he found that the best system would be that the completely righteous people not only enter heaven themselves, but are able to drag sinners with them. And therefore, in heaven, you'll find two kinds of people. People who entered on their own merit, and those who entered not on their own merit, but because they were associated with other people who did get there on their own merit. And therefore, heaven will be fairly well populated because it's not only the people who can earn it, earn a ticket on their own who enter, it's even the people who are associated with those people who did earn it on their own, they too can enter as well. So in heaven, you'll have two groups of people. You'll have those who earned their ticket to eternity on their own, and they're going to be on a higher level than others. And then you have a lower tier, and that's people who didn't earn a ticket to heaven on their own, but rather they entered because others dragged them with them to enter heaven. Now, in the book that I'm using, one of the books that I'm using to read the Derech Hashem, it has notes from Rabbi Arya Kaplan, and he quotes a Zohar, that says something really fascinating. 
and really mysterious, that the righteous, not only do they drag sinners with them to heaven, they actually entered Gehenom, purgatory, where all the sinners are being roasted, and they extract the sinners from Gehenom and pull them into heaven. Moreover, even people who, according to the strict law of the land, they lose their portion in Olam As we know, we've mentioned this many times. Every Jew, by default, has a portion of the world to come, but you could lose it. Even those people who lost it or who are liable to lose it can be saved and uplifted and brought to heaven by the righteous. Now, of course, this is a very interesting idea. And it's a curiosity to me what exactly the mechanism is of how do the righteous, how do they bring with them the wicked as well? But that's what he says. That's the concept that he introduces us to. And he tells us, as a result of that, there's only a few people that are permanently incapable of entering Olamba. And again, he reiterates, there's a hierarchy in heaven. Those who got there on their own merit are higher than those that they brought along. And then he says, in order to facilitate that, people were connected to each other. People are interconnected. And he quotes the famous Talmud. The Talmud says, Call Yisrael Arevim Zelazah. All of Israel is interconnected. They're all guarantors for each other. Which means, if I do a sin, God forbid, if I do a sin, a little sliver of that sin and the, the spiritual blemishes that it incurs, a little sliver is distributed to every Jew on the planet. And therefore, we're all guarantors for each other because each one of us are responsible essentially for the sins of the other Jew. And the reason for this is because we're all connected on a soul level beneath the bedrock of humanity, if you will. The souls are all united. Again, this is very advanced stuff, but we're just reading and trying to understand what he's saying. And therefore, if we're all connected for sin, if the sins of every individual get distributed amongst the rest of the Jews, well, then certainly the mitzvos of every Jew are also distributed. If I give a sliver of everyone my sins to every other Jew, I also give a sliver of everyone my mitzvos to every other Jew. So this is like the introduction to the next idea that he's going to share with us. And I found this idea to be very astonishing. He says, as a result of that, you'll find a situation that tsaros, suffering, yisurim, problems, will befall the righteous person and that will provide atonement for the whole generation. So we had the idea previously that suffering cleanses a person from sin. We had the two kinds of suffering. The suffering that is a wake-up call to wake you up and make sure you get back on track. And we have the other kind of suffering, which is to cleanse you from the contaminants born by sin. Now he's telling us, because all of Israel is interconnected, therefore, if I have a bit of suffering, a sliver of that cleansing goes to every other Jew. And if you have a very righteous person and they suffer, that's going to benefit every other person 
in the generation. The suffering of the righteous and the spiritual cleansing that it causes, that's going to be distributed to the entire nation and cleansing and thus elevating everyone with the righteous. And Rabbi Kaplan in his commentary brings a Mishnah in Negoyim chapter 2, Mishnah number 1. The Mishnah says, Rabbi Shmuel Omer, B'nai Yisrael, the children of Israel, Ani Kaparosam, I am their atonement. Meaning, the commentaries explain, call Onesh, any punishment that is befitting to fall against the Jewish people, behold, I am going to absorb it. I'm going to accept it upon myself in order to cleanse them and atone for them. And there are other sources to this effect. We're told multiple times in the Talmud that the death of the righteous atones for the whole generation. In fact, we're told that the death of the sons of Aaron is juxtaposed to the work done in the Temple of Yom Kippur to tell us that just like the work done in the Temple of Yom Kippur provides atonement for the whole generation, so too the death of Nadav and Avihu provided atonement for the whole generation. And then we're told that the death of Miriam is juxtaposed to the red heifer for the same reason. Just like the red heifer provides cleansing and purification for those who became contaminated, so too the death of Miriam the righteous provided cleansing and atonement and purification for the nation. And finally, the death of Aaron is juxtaposed to the description of the priestly vestments to tell us that just like the priestly garments provide atonement, so to the death of Aaron provide atonement for the entire nation. That's a similar idea that the suffering of the righteous actually benefits the rest of the nation. And the Ramchal tells us that in order for this to work, the righteous has to be happy in the cleansing that they get on behalf of the rest of the nation, just as they ought to be happy for the suffering that begets the cleansing that cleanses them themselves. And they benefit from this as well. You know, if you were the righteous, you would say, hey, you know what? If I have nothing to gain from this suffering, maybe I'll hold off on it. Maybe don't make me suffer because I gain nothing. Says Ramchal, no. That the level of suffering that a person, a righteous person, endures on behalf of his generation catapults that person to the highest level in Omaba. And then it takes us a step further. There is a higher level of suffering on behalf of others. Not only can the righteous, when they suffer, can they benefit and cleanse and atone and exculpate and expiate the rest of the people of their generation, they can actually spare the nation from suffering and destruction, i.e., not only can the suffering of the righteous cleanse the nation and make them worthy of Olam it can also save them from doom. And then he tells us that there's even higher level. There's a higher level of suffering of the righteous. Not only does it provide atonement and elevate the wicked or the rest of the populace to Olam and not only can it spare them from destruction and doom, but there could be a version of suffering of the righteous that brings the world to its ultimate perfection. 
The righteous absorb the wrath of the entire world and bring the world and prepare the world for its next phase of existence. And he's telling us, again, that we're going through so many ideas here that are so advanced, but I want to cover this chapter in its entirety, and I don't want to skip the parts of this chapter that are so interesting and so salacious. I want to cover it all. So when I have to go through this, even though each one of these ideas really need to be absorbed to understand what he's saying, he tells us something very fascinating. Suffering is necessary. It's mandatory in order to fulfill the purpose of creation. We have a body blockading our soul, blockading our spiritual identity. The only way to expose the light of our soul is to batter through that veneer. Moreover, every sin widens the barrier and necessitates a greater degree of suffering to fix it. You know, we talk about this concept a lot on the podcasts. The most difficult thing in the world, the most painful thing in the world to do is to change. What is expected of us is change. And that, by definition, is suffering. Therefore, there is some degree of human pain that's needed to bring about the completion of creation. But who is going to bear the cost? Who's going to suffer the blows? So explains the Ramchal. The Almighty designed a system that the suffering of the righteous can extend to other people. But because they are so personally righteous themselves, therefore, the suffering that they get is more impactful than the suffering of a regular Joe. A regular Joe who suffers, well, then they get cleansed, but they have their own sins to atone for. Someone who's so personally righteous, they have no sins to atone for with smaller blows, much more can be accomplished. And again, he tells us that the righteousness of the righteous who suffer on behalf of others gets augmented as well. But they become capable of rectifying the sins of previous generations as well. Not only are we connected on this very deep spiritual level with all of our co-religionists who are currently alive, our soul is intimately connected with all our great predecessors. And therefore, the righteous who's suffering can extend that purification and atonement to the previous generations. And those people are on the highest level of Olamaba. So again, we're seeing very advanced frameworks over here in Ramchal. The suffering of the righteous can elevate the less righteous Olamaba. The suffering of the righteous can also prevent destruction in this world. The suffering of the righteous can bring about the completion of creation and even for previous generations. The Talmud tells us in the book of Sukkah, page 45b, Rabbi Shimon Barichai said, I can absolve the entire world from judgment from the day that I was born until today. He suffered so much that that suffering 
can absolve all the people of his lifetime from all their sins. But, continues Rabbi Shemayichai, if you add to my merit the merit of my son, they too, of course, were hiding in the cave from the Romans, well, then we have enough merits to cleanse the entire world from the day one of creation until today. And if you add a third person to this trio, Yosem ben Uzi, if he's with us, then we cover all of human history. Obviously, very advanced stuff. And we see again this theme of the Torah, the death of the righteous atones like a sacrifice. It's the same principle. The human soul, or the Jewish soul for sure, is really just one soul on the most basic level. We're all parts of the soul of Adam. And therefore, the mitzvah and the sin, of course, of every individual redounds to the entirety of the whole. And the suffering and the concomitant cleansing and purification of one individual also has a ripple effect, cascades throughout this entire system and affects and cleanses and upgrades and elevates everyone with them. Now, if we had all these frameworks in Ramchal, we would say, you know what, this is really interesting and we got our money's worth. But then he says something even more interesting. Another framework to understand what is happening in this world is found in the concept of reincarnation. The concept of reincarnation, the way he explains it, one soul can arrive to this world many different times in different bodies. And the benefit of that is that you have a mission, you're here to accomplish something, but what if you failed? What if you didn't do your job? You may get a second chance. You may be reincarnated. The soul that you had is going to find a new body host and again be given the opportunities to fulfill your mission. And that soul, of course, enters this world with some baggage. The sins and the flaws and the gaps that exist in the previous iteration, the previous incarnation, that can be fixed. That can be rectified now. So you have all your previous iterations of yourself and you're going to be given the opportunities to fix it all in your current version of yourself. Even though, again, I don't want to get too technical, and I hope to do a very deep dive into reincarnation sometime in the future, but it seems like you may need more than one visit back to this world because on each time you come back, you're dealing with a different element of your soul, very advanced stuff. But the principle is still true, that... In your current iteration, you can fix and rectify and complete previous mistakes, flaws, and gaps in the mission that you were entrusted with. And he tells us that in the end of all these reincarnations, you're going to be judged. And the judgment will include everything that happens in every kind or every version, every incarnation that you had in this world. It's all going to be amassed together, lumped together, and you have to pay a reckoning and an accounting for God for all the decisions that you made. 
So obviously, this is a very fascinating idea. The way I like to think about this is we know that your body is basically comprised of trillions and trillions of cells. And every day, you are replacing millions upon millions of your own cells. Your body takes the old cells that are a little bit weak and removes them, excretes them. And you have the infrastructure to create new cells, new versions of that to replace with that with new versions and to constantly be updating the hardware of your body. So your body today is not even on a molecular level the same body that you had yesterday. So it's almost like we have a mini reincarnation every day. We have the same soul, even though, again, not to get too technical, but it seems likely that even the anatomy of the soul can change. But on a basic level, we have the same soul today and a different body than we had yesterday. So on a little level, on a small little level, we have been reincarnated. Maybe every night that we go to sleep, we get reincarnated anew into a new body because there's billions and billions of new cells. I don't know exactly what the numbers are, but millions for sure of new cells that you have today that comprise your body that didn't exist in yesterday's version of your body. So again, not to say that there's full-fledged reincarnation every day, but at least the principle is that idea or good way to think about it. And tells us the Ramchal that certain things will happen to us in this incarnation that are not a result of anything that we did in our lifetime, but instead are products of what we did in previous lifetimes. So Rabbi Kaplan in the back in the comments, he says, or he suggests, this would explain why children, God forbid, are born sometimes with deformities, with illnesses, children die in infancy. These, these things make no sense to us. How do you understand? Why would God do that? Why would God go through the whole trouble of bringing someone to this world only to have them lacking something fundamental or, God forbid, dying in infancy? It makes no sense to us and we don't have answers. But here we're told, and again, it's hard for us to accept it if, God forbid, we've been exposed to such a tragedy ourselves. And this is a very bad idea. If someone, God forbid, God forbid, God forbid, suffers a loss or tragedy, you don't say, oh, it must be that there was something in the reincarnation. We don't say that. This is all the general, the general principles, the general frameworks that potentially are at play. But it does make sense that if a person is arriving to this world with some history, they've been here before, and there's something that they need to do, and it may be a very small thing that they need to do, it's possible that they take a cup of coffee here in this world, they've accomplished what they need to accomplish, and that's it, it's time to usher them back home. Maybe the souls that are almost completely perfect, all they need is a month or two months or five months or a year in this world, to fix whatever tiny thing they need to fix. And they go back to where they came from. I'll tell you what happened to a cousin of mine. A cousin of mine, they had a beautiful child. They named the child Shlomo. After my great-grandfather, the term great is the description of my grandfather. And sadly, the child died, sudden infant death syndrome, SIDS, which is a description of a child dying, just that there's no reason why it should happen. Perfectly healthy child just dies after a couple of months. 
So my uncle, who's a very famous rabbi in the United States, he wrote them a letter of condolences. And in the letter, he said that our great patriarch, my grandfather, he was a huge tzaddik. And when he got to heaven, they said, you are perfect. But he had a little bit of a checkered background. His father wasn't completely observant. His mother was a very righteous woman. But his father, there were some problems in the pedigree. And therefore, the heavenly court determined, writes my uncle to my cousin, his nephew, in a letter. The heavenly court determined that this soul has to come back to be born in a very special and holy family, in a holy, in a holy environment, the holy circumstances. And that will be the last little bit that this soul needs to achieve its perfection. And this was very comforting to the parents because if so, it's not just for naught. You know, to go through the joy and the ecstasy of bearing a child only to bury that child a couple months later, it's the most excruciating thing that a parent can endure. And it makes no sense. And you ask questions, why, why, why? And we don't know the answer. But once we understand the Almighty takes everything into account and everything's done with goodness and justness and righteousness and kindness. And we have this idea of reincarnation, the idea that the soul is what matters, the body is just the garment for the soul. And you know what? You go to your closet and you find that you have 10 suits or 10 dresses or five pairs of shoes. But you only have one pair of feet. Why do you have so, why do you have so many pairs of shoes? Why do you, if you have, you have one black suit and one gray suit and one blue suit and one navy suit. And if you're a little bit more ambitious and creative, maybe a tan suit. But you only have one set of arms. The answer is, is that you are a person and a person sometimes has many garments. The soul is the real person and the body's the garment for the soul. And sometimes, the body, i.e. the soul, uses a garment, not for so long. It only needs it for one function. It's like a, it's like a tuxedo, right? You buy a tuxedo for your brother's wedding and you use it once and that's it. You don't need it anymore. You rent it maybe. You rent, you rent the tuxedo. But why? It's a, it's a perfectly good tuxedo. You only need it once. If there is a soul that only needs one little thing, it needs one day or one month or one year, that's all it needs. And the money knows that. We have no idea. Maybe that would explain the circumstances that happen in this world. Your mission may be related to something completely leftover and vestigial from your last incarnation. And your suffering in this world is a result of what happened in previous lifetimes. A couple of years ago, in one of the other podcast channels, I did a mega podcast on the Vilna Gaon's commentary on the book of Jonah. And it's a study of this book of Jonah that we read on Yom Kippur. It's a study of this book on an allegorical level. And one of the things that he writes is about the concept of reincarnation and how reincarnation affects a person's situation in this world. And he quotes the Talmud, the book of Brachos, page 7a, the Talmud says that a righteous person who suffers in this world is a tzaddik ben rasha, is a tzaddik, the son of a wicked person. Explains the Vilna Gaon, what this means is, 
a tzaddik, a righteous person in this lifetime, the son of a Russia, meaning that that same soul in the previous lifetime was a Russia. And therefore, a righteous person can be completely righteous in this world and suffer for their sins and their misdeeds and their missteps and their mishaps of the previous lifetime that they lived over here. Now, the Ramchal, in his chapter, he concludes the discussion on reincarnation with several caveats, and he says the details of it are so vast, and we don't know exactly what and why and where and how. But in all of these matters, we have to remember the verse, Hatsur Tamim Palo, we quoted this in the previous episode, the rock, perfect is his deeds, called Rachav Mishpat, all of his ways are just, he's trustworthy, we can rely on him, he is going to do things in the most proper and just and righteous fashion. But this is one of the factors that come into play when we try to understand how the Almighty interacts with this world and with the inhabitants of this world, i.e. with us. And then he tells us something really interesting. There are a lot of reasons that he delineated of why things happen to a person. But we don't know, of course, which one of these factors are at play. It's not that all of these factors contribute to a certain circumstance. But no, sometimes it'll be one of these 10 or so factors at play. And sometimes it'll be a different factor that will result in a different circumstance in this world. And sometimes these factors will contradict each other. And what do you do then? If one reason argues the person should be rich and healthy and strong and robust, and a different reason argues the person should be weak and poor and frail, which one of those wins? One deed, for example, that on its own would merit the situation to be X. A second deed would merit that the situation be Y, and you have both those deeds, and you can only have X or Y. What do you do then? That is something, writes Ramchal, that only God can figure out. Only the money knows how exactly to factor in every single bit of information to get to the most just outcome. But the bottom line is that these are the general frameworks and all circumstances the person finds themselves in in this world derive from at least one of these frameworks that he delineates in this chapter. And again, we don't know the specifics, why a specific thing happened in a specific time to a specific person. We don't know. And we are humble enough to admit as much. But again, knowing the general principles is still knowing a lot. And he ends off with just another framework. He says, some things that happen to a person in this world are an ends, and some things are a means. So he says, and this is something we mentioned in the past, sometimes a person will have a bad thing that's just a means to facilitate a good thing. The example that he gives, your animal breaks its leg and collapses into the ground, you dig it out and you find a buried treasure chest. Or, you miss the boat, and the boat goes on to capsize, and everyone aboard perishes. 
you missed a flight and the flight crashes. Is missing a flight a good thing or a bad thing? Well, to us, it looks like a bad thing, unless we find out that actually it's a good thing. And then, explains Ramchal, what's actually happening at play here is that missing the flight is not the ends, it is the means, but the ultimate result is sometimes beyond us. And we don't know what's a means and what's an ends, and we don't know what's for us and what's for other people. God determines both the outcomes and the means for us and for other people for good and for bad, but ultimately, it's all for good. The Almighty is trustworthy in his judgment. He oversees everything. He has complete and total knowledge of all. The heretics, they jump the gun and they say, well, it must be the God has abandoned the land. But now that we've seen this incredible piece in Ramchal, we at least understand that there is a method to the madness We've seen this masterpiece going through every potential reason why bad things happen to good people, why good things happen to bad people. Depending upon how exactly we count, around 10. Only God knows what specific reason is at play, but certainly none of it is random. And of course, we still have more to discuss in this 10th principle of God's omniscience. We have to understand how exactly the money interacts and oversees and manages the world. And on the individual level, on the communal level, on the national level, animals is a big question that's discussed. The Almighty's knowledge and how it differs from our knowledge and how God's knowledge and foreknowledge does not mandate determinism. There is still a lot to discuss. But we'll stop over here. From the Torch Center, this is the Torah 101 podcast. Do me a favor. Share this podcast with a friend. And submit a five-star review to Apple Podcasts so people know this is worthwhile to listen. And as always, my address is RabbiWallBeatGmail.com. I'm in the Torch Center. It's still somehow stifling hot towards the end of October. But we're not complaining. We're in the Torch Center and we're studying Torah together. It's a great honor and a pleasure.